I'm reading from the 11th chapter of Hebrews, verse 23 following. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. We've been studying in our Sunday morning sermons about great trials of men of the Bible. We have thought about uh, Daniel, we've thought about Nehemiah and Joseph. And today we are coming to look into the life of one of the greatest of all of the figures of human history. And that is Moses. His story is so well known to so many of us and we've loved it and treasured it. It's an ideal life to preach because his life is divided up into three sections and even a great poem has been written about him. You have three points and a poem. <laughs> the first 40 years of Moses' life is intensely interesting because here he is face to face with the first of his greatest trials. Indeed, all of his life was a trial. There are two special trials that I want to pay attention to today. Let me begin by telling you that when Joseph had gone into Egypt and God's sovereign hand had been at work in taking him to that place, and then later that people whom God sought to bless through Jacob's family were brought there into the land of Egypt, and the Pharaoh who knew Joseph allowed them to take a goodly place called Goshen and to dwell there. And these Hebrews began to develop and they multiplied and they prospered. And of course, Joseph in process of time died. And then some centuries go by. Great buildings have been erected through the blood and sweat and toil of an enslaved people. These people of God enslaved in Egypt. For the Pharaoh now upon the throne knew not Joseph. And the people complain under the rigor of the great hardship through which they must pass their lives, and their groanings come up unto God. And as is God's way, God chooses a man, and his sovereignty is at work here. The Pharaoh resorts to the most atrocious cruelty. He decides that every male child born of the Hebrews will be put to death at birth. Then when this does not work because the midwives will not cooperate with him, then Pharaoh sends down another command that every male child will be taken and flung into the river Nile. And of course, the story of Moses begins to emerge as the sovereign hand of God is at work in history. For Moses' mother and father are people of faith. And they know that the God of their fathers is also God even in their hardship. And so when their little one is born into the world and they look at this little male child, 
they know that somehow God will help them. And one day Moses' mother, in concern for her little boy who can no longer be hidden because he is growing now and it's not easy to hide a little baby three months old, she begins in her weeping to weave a little basket from the reeds and she daubs it with pitch to make it waterproof. She puts some cloth on the inside of it and she takes her little baby and places him in that little ark and she puts it into the river Nile and with it go her prayers and she is praying for God to watch over her little one. Now you may be sure that she was judicious about the place where that baby was placed. And as that baby floated downstream in the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter has come with her maidens to wash herself at the river, and they hear a baby croon or cry. And Pharaoh's daughter sins for this little baby to be fetched and brought to her. And they bring this little child, and she knows right away that some mother has sought to protect her little Hebrew baby from destruction. Many, many a Jewish mother has faced this anguish since, as the world has unleashed all of its terrors to destroy this ancient people of God. But God's sovereign hand is still at work with the Jew, just as he was with Moses. Well, when she looked at this little one, she brought him to her home to keep him for her own. Her mother's heart went out to him, and she loved him. And then there was Miriam, Moses' sister, a little girl who had been sent to watch her baby brother float downstream in that little boat, and uh, she quickly made a suggestion to some of the maidens of Pharaoh's daughters, and that was that she be allowed to go and fetch a Hebrew nurse and bring her to care for this little baby. And so Moses' mother becomes what little babies' mothers should be, Moses' babysitter. <laughs> she mothers her little child, and she mothers her little child and nurtures him in faith and teaches him such truths about God as his little mind will cling to. And as he grows up in the stately learning of the palace of the the Pharaoh, he still has some principles at work in his mind and heart that God himself has imbued his whole feelings with. And so the first of his great trials come. And no one has put it any better than the King James translators have made it in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. That 11th chapter of Hebrews which has been called God's Hall of Fame. A few weeks ago, one of my best uh, friends, a great hero of mine, made the football Hall of Fame. And how I rejoice to see him achieve this distinction. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is God's Hall of Fame. It's God's Westminster Abbey. And when you come to this man of faith, this friend of God named Moses, we are told that when he came to age, he chose, he made a decision, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Make no mistake about it, there are pleasures in sin. 
But make no mistake about it, sin is a waste of time, and sin bears with it great destruction. Moses, trained by the best tutors in all of Egypt, Moses, who one day himself might have sat upon the throne of Pharaoh, and yet Moses identified with the people in the mud huts who worked with brick and mortar, these slaves, he identified with these afflicted people of God. And I think it was all because his mother took seriously her responsibility to train him in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. She was his first school, and he learned from her. Now we come to the forks of the road. The most perceptive comment I ever heard on this was by a country preacher. Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, he said. He said, Moses has come to the forks of the road, and the forks of the road is a mighty revealing place. And it is. Some of you are faced with a decision to make. You come to the forks in the road, and you need to make a decision. Perhaps a decision about where you'll go to school next year. Decision about where you'll work, what you will do with the rest of your life, who you'll marry, what your reaction will be to a certain set of circumstances. And you're at the forks of the road. God has been good to us not only to give us the blessed writings of Holy Scripture which are uniquely inspired, but also to give us words of wisdom from poets from time to time that help us much. This is one of my favorite poems by Robert Frost. It's called The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black, Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Those words were written by a man who never even graduated from college, taught literature at Harvard. A lot of sense. Moses looked down the road, both roads. He could have stayed in great power and authority in Egypt. He could have rationalized it. But he chose to identify himself with the people of God. A man once said to me in the White House in Washington, this is where the money is, and this is where the power is. 
This is where the money is. This is where the power is. Everyone is called upon at one time or another to make a decision. What will you base your decision upon? Moses chose to identify himself with this rabble slave crowd in their rigor and in their bitter bondage. One day he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating on a Hebrew slave. Not an uncommon thing to see. And finally, that Jewish blood of his boils within him and he picks up a stone and I don't know whether he meant to kill the man or not, but he laid one on him and he died. And then when Moses realized what he had done, he buried him in a shallow grave in the sand and he had made a big decision right there. The next day he saw two Jewish brothers fighting each other and he came to separate them, telling them that they were fellows of the same race. Why should they fight each other? And one of them, in consummate irony, turns to him and said, will you kill one of us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses is afraid. He knows that his crime is known and Moses runs. He runs as fast as he can to get out of the land and to go into the desert. The first of his 40 years has ended there in the palace of the Pharaoh. And now he goes away into the desert country of Midian. And God takes him to another school. He made his choice at the forks of the road. And when he started down that road, it looked a lot harder than he had anticipated. I wonder if out there in the deserts of Midian, if he ever thought about all that he had back there in Egypt. And I'm sure he must have. And out in the desert country of Midian, some wonderful things happen as God skills and drills his own truth into the mind and heart of his servant. He comes one day to a well where some women have come to draw water for a, some flocks. And there some shepherds are abusing them and will not let them get water. And Moses must have been a very physical person. He takes command of the situation and sees to it that these women's flocks are, are fed water. And so they drink of the water and they go back to their house and they say some wonderful man we saw down there protected us and, and drew water and fed this flock of sheep. And the father, who is a man of oriental hospitality, says, why didn't you bring him here to eat? I'd like to get to know a man like that. So they fetch him. Moses comes to live there, and Jethro, his father-in-law, has lessons to teach him too. He marries one of Jethro's daughters. God causes him to have a son. And the ancient Hebrews had a way of naming their children after certain things that happened to them in life. And here he feels his loneliness. And so he calls his son a stranger in a strange land because that's what he himself is. And then God, through those long years in the lonely desert place, begins to teach Moses lessons Lessons that he couldn't have learned any other way. And one day he sees a bush that is burning, but it does not go out. And he turns aside to look at that sight. Now, I'm tired of all these 
idiot commentaries that try to explain this away. And you'll have to forgive me for being so brash. But uh, Moses was educated in the best universities in Egypt, and he ought to have known what he was looking at. And, and he saw a bush that was consumed with fire yet did not burn up. It was clearly a miraculous sight, and God himself spoke to him. So don't waste your time trying to explain the miracles away. And uh, God speaks to him. And Moses said, who are you? And God said, I am. I am. And then God says to him, you are going to go and bring my people out of the bondage of Egypt. You'll go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, who, me? I stutter. I stammer. I'm not an effective communicator. I can't go bring anyone out of bondage. And the Lord demonstrates his power to Moses. What is that in thine hand? Cast it to the ground. It becomes a serpent. Pick it up. It becomes a rod. Look at your hand with leprosy. Put it in your bosom. It's clean. God says, I made your mouth. I can enable you. And then Moses longs for companionship. He says, give me someone to help me. And the Lord said, there he comes. There's Aaron. He likes to talk. We'll use Aaron. <laughs> he comes, and then the great adventure begins to take place as Moses goes into Pharaoh's presence. Well, let my people go, says the Lord. And you know, I expected when Moses walked into the palace, he used to look around and he thought, you know, I could have been here. Instead of him being up on the throne, I could be up there. But he had made a decision back at the forks of the road, and now his heart and soul is in it. The end of another 40 years has taken place, and Moses' life is unfolding as he begins to prepare the people of God and to lead them through God's great power out of this land. And of course, you know the story. The story of the Passover, how after the plagues, God brings one final plague of judgment upon Egypt and the firstborn from the Pharaoh upon the throne to the lowliest slave. The firstborn male is slain. And Pharaoh finally lets God's people go. And Moses takes this rabble slave crowd out of Egypt. And they begin their pilgrimage to the promised land. But then there are rebellions on foot. Time and time again, they begin to yearn for the old life, for the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. They want to go back there again. And Moses strives with these people. One old Jewish commentator said that one reason God put Moses to herding sheep for 40 years was so that he would be qualified to deal with these people. Those of us who come from Texas and who have known sheep realize that the scriptures do not flatter us when they call us sheep because of all the dumb things the Lord ever made. Sheep have got to be right up at the top of the list. In Texas, they're right next to armadillos. You know, you know uh, they are really something. 
And yet Moses worked out there with the sheep and he was learning how to deal with an obstinate, rebellious people and God was training him. Maybe he was going to be a Presbyterian preacher. But, <laughs> uh, but the Lord was training Moses. And so here he begins to lead the people out and they go through one trial after another. It's not enough that God has smote the Egyptians, led them through the Red Sea, brought them uh, out there close to the promised land and then they rebel. And for 38 years, they wander around in circles because of their rebellion against God until a whole generation begins to pass away and fade into the dusts of the desert. And then we come to the flaw, the one flaw that is recorded against this man Moses that I read to you a moment ago in the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers. Moses, the great man of God, one day is besieged by these people when they're just at the verge of entering the promised land after 38 years, 37 years and more in the wilderness. They come to another Kadesh, not Kadesh Barnea, but another Kadesh. Here his sister has just died who had evidently meant a great deal to him and who was a prophetess. And then these people get, begin to murmur again. And their murmuring is really classic. Would that we too had died with our dear brothers. Catch that. Would too that we had died with our dear brothers, the Lord killed. The Lord had brought them out of Egypt. They forget all about it. They shouted these things at Moses. They said to Moses, you deliberately brought us into this wilderness to get rid of us along with our flocks and our herds. What a lie. This man who had identified himself with this ungrateful people. And no wonder we see things happen here. They need water to drink. So God tells Moses how they can have water. God speaks to Moses and Aaron, they come before God and fall down and the glory of God appears to them and God says to them, Moses, give them to drink, but go to the rock now. Water has come from another rock, but God does it differently this time. That first rock that he smote was 37 years before. And here he is not told to smite a rock, but to take the rod of Aaron the priest and to speak. He goes to the most unlikely place to get water. Maybe Moses realized that some German higher critic would say that he hit the rocks and water came out of a hidden stream or something. But anyway, he goes to a rock. And here he is commanded not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock. Just speak to it. Say to this rock, gush forth. Hold the rod in your hand, but speak to this rock and say, bring forth water and water will come. But Moses, and here we come to the sin in his life. Moses is angry. Moses has given his life's blood to these people. He left all of that in Egypt. He went all through all that period in the deserts and now for almost 40 years has been with them and heard their complaining. And Moses is angry. And even though we may be the holiest person God ever created, we better be careful when we're angry because we're likely to mismanage things 
and disobey God, and that's what Moses did. Moses got his glory and God's glory confused, and so he took the rod of Aaron, and he went out and looked at all these people, and he said to them, Must we, see, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And then he takes that rod and he smites the rock twice. Now, I must confess that when I first read this, I thought, what a little sin. If it had been me, I'd have probably smitten some of their ungrateful faces with, <laughs> with the rod. <laughs> but Moses took the rod and smote the rock twice. But he disobeyed God. That's not God's way. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And Moses disobeyed God. He smote the rock twice. Must we do this? We have to be careful when we start looking out for our glory. Always very careful. Gideon is the classic example of that. What a great leader he was when he was taking that sword and saying, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And my, what victories he won. But after the people began to praise him, you hear Gideon saying, the sword of Gideon and of the Lord. See, he got it mixed up a little bit. And we have to be careful there. Moses, in his moment of anger, mismanages the situation, smites the rock twice, and God speaks to Moses and says, because you have done this thing, you will not enter into the promised land. The one thing that you wanted to do more than anything else I'm not going to let you do. Now let me say this. The judgments of God are always true and right. Never forget that. I hear people say, well, I know God would never do this and a God of love wouldn't do that. Listen, beloved, don't try to be purer than God. You are not. Don't try to be kinder than God. You are not. God will judge with a generosity that is far greater than any person listening to me can ever imagine. And God will judge with a severity that is far greater than any person listening to me can ever imagine. He does not judge according to our anger, our wrath, our mistakes. His judgments are righteous and true altogether. Now, God expected much of Moses, and it put much upon him. And so here, God demands more of Moses. Here, the best of men proves that there are shortcomings in him. At his very strong point, Moses was considered the meekest of men, and yet he has flare-ups with anger. By meek, it means teachable and controllable. And here he flares up. But God judges sins differently than we do with greater mercy and with greater judgment. You know, we can pass these easy judgments, but I'll promise you there's not a soul listening to me today that anyone's going to be reading about 3,000 years from now. But we're still reading about Moses. 3,500 years have gone by since that event took place. God invested much in Moses and he demanded much of him. And Moses here did the wrong thing, so God tells him that he will not enter into the promised land. This is, to me, the second trial that I especially wanted to point out because it shows the face of disappointment. Great disappointment 
Abraham Lincoln took this 34th chapter in the book of Deuteronomy and read these strange words of how Moses could not go into the promised land one day to a Roman Catholic priest who came to visit him in the White House. And Mr. Lincoln said, I have the strange feeling that God will not permit me to see the thing for which I have strived so much that I will not live to see what I've wanted to achieve. And he didn't. Moses did not enter into the promised land. But God loved Moses. He is called his friend. And the lessons that we learn from Moses are to bring our disappointments, no matter how unfair they may seem, and yield them to God because he can work things out. Nathaniel Hawthorne, the New England writer, one day faced his supervisor in the customs house where he worked and was told that he was released from his job. He was fired. He came back to his home, heartbroken, dreading to tell his wife that he had lost his job. His wife went over and got a, some paper and some ink and a pen and set it down in front of him and said, Good, now you can write. And I'm so glad that Hawthorne got fired. And so is the rest of the world. Disappointments can be changed by the power of God. And this disappointment that Moses submitted to, and here in his old age, as I read to you a moment ago, Moses went up to the plains of, the plains of Moab and unto the mountain of Nebo, to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. And the Lord let him look out and see the land that he couldn't enter in. You'll never accomplish in life what you set out to accomplish in all that you want to do. But remember this, that for the believer who trusts in the eternal one, God, God is working his purposes out, and those who have been faithful to him will be blessed. Moses didn't go into the promised land, not there. But one day God brought him up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah. And Moses talked with Jesus, the Son of God. And God gave him a glory in the world to come that Moses could never have imagined at that moment. He faced his trial, chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. And he faced his trial of disappointment and how God has blessed us. The other day, I was greatly impressed to hear those cannon firing at the funeral for the president. And to see that solemn procession in Washington with the riderless horse and the caisson. I couldn't help but think about a great poem called The Burial of Moses. I want to close with parts of it. By Nebo's lonely mountain on this side Jordan's wave and a veil in the land of Moab there lies a lonely grave. And no man knows that sepulcher, and no man saw it ere, for the angels of God upturned the sod and laid the dead man there. That was the grandest funeral that ever passed on earth, but no man heard the trampling or saw the train go forth. So without sound of music or voice of them that wept silently down from the mountain's crown, the great procession swept. 
But when the warrior dieth, his comrades in the war, with arms reversed and muffled drums, follow his funeral car. They, know, they show the banners taken, they tell his battles won, and after him lead his masterless steed while peels the minute gun. This was the truest warrior that ever buckled a sword, this the most gifted poet that ever breathed a word. And had he not high honor the hillside for a pall to lie in state while angels wait with stars for candles tall? In that strange grave without a name, whence his uncoffined clay shall break again, O wondrous thought, before the judgment day, and stand with glory wrapped around on hills he never trod, and speak of the strife that won our life with the incarnate Son of God. O lonely grave in Moab's land, O dark Beth Peor's hill, speak to these curious hearts of ours and bid them to be still. God hath his mysteries of grace, ways that we cannot tell. He hides them deep like the hidden sleep of him he loved so well. Let us stand in prayer. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, let me remind you that the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that Moses had faith. He endured his seeing him who is invisible. I hope that your faith is greater than just the things that you can see just the things that you can feel about this life, but that you trust in the eternal one, God himself, and in his son, Jesus Christ, as your savior, and that you have committed your life by faith to him in real discipleship. If you've never made that decision, you can make it today. You have light that Moses did not have, that streams from the face of Jesus Christ. May God grant that somehow, some way, somewhere, even today, you might say an eternal yes to Jesus. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.